ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Is our solar system unique and do we live on a privileged planet? I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future, and today we have on the show with us Guillermo Gonzalez, a research scientist at TELUS One Scientific in Huntsville, Alabama. Guillermo is a fellow with Discovery Institute. He is well known as he is a co-author of the book, The Privileged Planet, How Our Place in the Cosmos is Designed for Discovery. He's made many important scientific contributions. He's authored nearly 90 scientific peer-reviewed papers, as well as a major college-level astronomy textbook with Cambridge University Press. His work has led to the discovery of two new planets outside of our solar system, and his research has been featured in Science, Nature, and on the cover of Scientific American. We're here with Guillermo today talking about his most recent chapter that he's written, a chapter in the volume Science and Faith and Dialogue, published by the South African academic publisher AOSIS. And Guillermo, your book chapter is titled Local Fine-Tuning and Habitable Zones. In our recent podcast, we discussed some elements of the circumstellar habitable zone, which you defined, and we wanted to come back and continue the conversation. So thank you for joining us once again here. Happy to be here. So in the previous podcast, we talked a little bit about what is required to get an Earth-like planet, a habitable planet in a solar system. But what about the star at the center of a solar system? How does this affect this idea of a circumstellar habitable zone? And would you say that there's anything special about our sun that allows Earth to be life-friendly? Well, the discussion of the circumstellar habitable zone that people have had over the years uh, has always assumed that, you know, you have something identical to our solar system, including an identical sun, and you just move the Earth around and, and what happens to it? Is it able to maintain liquid water on its surface? But, you know, there are many other factors uh, that you have to consider, and one of these is the host star. And we have a host star we call the sun, which is actually not that common. Some people say that, oh, the sun's just a typical star. It isn't. It's in quite exceptional in a number of ways. So first of all, it's among the 8% most massive stars that we see around us in the Milky Way. So it's, it's a relatively rare star in its mass. Its composition, which has now been compared to other sun-like stars, is also unusual. So the particular pattern of the chemical elements that we can measure with spectroscopy ranks around the 10% level in terms of its uh, unusual pattern of abundances. So only about one in 10 stars, sun-like stars, meaning a G-dwarf, will have a composition as unusual as the sun. In addition, it appears that its light output is uh, unusually stable compared to other sun-like stars at its age. So the sun was a rambunctious youngster in its youth. It was much more active and it had uh, more flares and and its light output was more variable over the history of the sun, it's, it's quieted down. And this is true. We see this in other stars, uh, different ages, uh, sun-like stars that are very young versus middle age or, or the same age as the sun. We see that it's, its activity quiets down over time. But even at comparing the sun to other stars of its age, it appears to be more photometrically quiet than those, which is a good thing for us because it's the stability of its output is what leads to long-term stability of our, our climate. And also, these uh, larger light variations are accompanied by violent outbursts like flares, coronal mass ejections, and things like that, which can produce uh, short-lived uh, increases in the high-energy radiation, which is dangerous for life. So our sun appears to be more quiet and uh, well-behaved than most sun-like stars. 
So when when Carl Sagan said, I believe it was in Cosmos, he said, we live on a insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of the universe. Our star really is not a humdrum star. It's not necessarily the, the only star that's like it out there, but it is certainly a minority, a small percentage of stars would be like our star in in, in the sense of it being quiet and, and its radiation output and all of its other properties that make it uh, friendly for life. Absolutely right. So let's talk about our galaxy. What is the galactic habitable zone and what are some of the parameters that affect it? So the galactic habitable zone is this idea that not all places in the Milky Way galaxy that we inhabit are equally habitable, that some places are, are better for life or more likely to, to host a planet with life than others. Now, the galaxy varies in its properties quite a bit from place to place. It's got a really dense center, very high star density. We have a supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy. And it's got what's called the bulge of stars, which is stars with mostly randomly oriented orbits. Now, as you move out, the disk, the flattened disk of the Milky Way dominates, uh, which contains gas, dust, and stars moving around in mostly circular orbits, not 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 in mostly flattened or low inclination orbits. So it it's it it resembles the solar system in, in a sense because the solar system is very flat. Uh, the orbits of the planets have very little inclination relative to each other. They're all orbiting in the same direction, and they're mostly circular. So analogous to this, the disk of the galaxy is where we live, about halfway out from the center to the visible edge. And as you go out towards the edge, the star density declines. The star formation rate is lower. The supernova rate is lower. The uh, interstellar material is uh lower uh, interstellar clouds are lower in density as well. So, so it varies quite dramatically from place to place. Now, because the star formation has been going on at a faster rate in the inner part of the galaxy compared to the outer part, the heavy elements have been building up over time more rapidly. So the elements are produced by massive stars synthesizing these elements in their interiors and then blowing up and then scattering these freshly synthesized elements throughout the interstellar medium, which becomes the, the building blocks for the next generation of stars and planets around them. And so there's this known gradient of composition in the disk of the Milky Way. As you go out from the center, the abundance of heavy elements becomes less and less as you go out from the center. You need a certain minimum abundance of heavy elements to form planets because planets are made of more than just hydrogen and helium. In particular, rocky planets are made of more than just hydrogen and helium, you need oxygen and silicon and, and calcium and magnesium and so on. So there's this gradient, what's called a metallicity gradient. So you can't be too far out on the edge of the galaxy because then you don't have enough building blocks to form something like the solar system. And not just the rocky planets, but the giant planets also need these rocky components because you first have to build a solid core for something like Jupiter. Once it gets to be big enough, then it can accrete or, and hold on to the abundant hydrogen and helium. And so it's not just the rocky planets, but the giant planets too that need the uh, heavy elements. The other thing that you need is not enough or not too many threats to life on a planet. So things that are threatening on the galactic scale include supernovae, gamma ray outbursts, outbursts of the supermassive black hole at the center. For example, if a star gets too close to it, gets ripped apart, forms an accretion disk. It emits a lot of radiation. Uh, passages through giant molecular clouds can cause problems. And that's also where 
massive stars tend to form and go off as supernovae. So all these things are more dangerous towards the center of the galaxy. So you don't want to be too close to the center, but yet you can't be too far away from the center because then you don't have enough of the elements you need to build planets. And so there's this kind of intermediate range of distances from the center in the disk, which are optimized for, for making habitable planets. So that's the galactic habitable zone, the zone which minimizes threats, maximizes, uh, or you have sufficient building blocks for life. So there's certainly a, a Goldilocks dynamic going on. You don't want to be too close to the center. You don't want to be too far from the center. You've got to be sort of just right to have the right amount of radiation and the right amount of heavy elements and, and all of that for life to exist. Yep. There's also another Goldilocks zone, so to speak, with regards to the the age in which life can form in the universe. Can you explain for us the concept of the cosmic habitable age and why, why are there some time periods where planetary life could not exist in the universe? Right. So this is very analogous to the galactic habitable zone. So what's going on in the Milky Way galaxy over the course of its history is mirrored to some degree in what's going on in the broader universe over the history of the universe. So over time, stars will be forming, supernovae will be enriching the local interstellar medium with freshly synthesized heavy elements. So all this has been going on within the Milky Way, but also in other galaxies throughout the universe. And the one thing I didn't mention about the Milky Way uh, galactic habitable zone is that there is a limit eventually on the age because the Earth, as you mentioned before in the previous broadcast, has plate tectonics. And plate tectonics is a really important part of habitability. And that's driven in part mostly by the decay of radioactive elements in a planet's interior. And so long-lived reactive elements like uh, thorium and potassium-40 and uranium. And these are produced in massive stars. As the star formation rate continues to decline in the, in the future history of the universe, including the Milky Way, the production of these reductive elements is going to decline. So on timescales of roughly 10 billion years or so, the planets formed in the future will have lower abundance of these uh, geologically important reductive isotopes. And the Earth did when it was formed. Thorium being the longest half-life is something like 15 billion years. And uh, uranium, two isotopes, one is about four and a half billion years, happens to be the age of the Earth. And uh, the other one is a um, shorter-lived isotope of uranium-235, which is about 700 million years. Uh, all those are important for geology. The star formation rate peaked earlier in the history of the universe, similarly to the way it peaked early in the history of the Milky Way. And that was a very dangerous time because all these supernovae were going off at a much higher rate. And you had also these giant black holes forming in the nuclei of galaxies, spewing a huge amount of radiation. Uh, we see these most distant ones as quasars, and the more nearby ones are called Seifert galaxies. So from time to time, some object will fall into the black hole and, and a lot of radiation will be emitted. So in the early history of the universe, it was much more dangerous. The heavy elements were still building up. And so you didn't have that many planets that were forming yet. Uh, but in the distant future history of the universe, star formation will continue to ramp down. You're going to form G-type stars like the sun less and less often. Most of the stars will be red dwarfs, which for a number of reasons are probably uh, not very habitable environments. And the long-lived radioactive isotopes will continue to decay. And so uh, there's this optimum range of, of time in the history of the universe. 
than what we call the cosmic habitable layer. So Guillermo, you have a figure in your chapter towards the end showing the many interacting parameters that determine whether a habitable planet can exist. And I was really struck by just how many parameters there are. You have, of course, the fine-tuning at the beginning of the universe to allow for galaxies and planets and stars to form. But then, even assuming you can get those, you have all kinds of other parameters that have to be just right for a planet to be habitable. It's mass, it's internal heat, it's the obliquity of its orbit, it's moon, the shape of its orbit, it's rotation, whether there's an atmosphere, uh, whether there's plate tectonics, and then the properties of its host star um, and its location within the galaxy. And these might uh, lead you to have simple life and they may not even lead you to have complex life. There's a, a whole host of parameters that you have to get just right. And I would encourage folks who are interested in this to download Guillermo's chapter from this book and spend some time meditating on this diagram. It's it's really quite striking. So in, in your view, is it likely that there is another Earth-like habitable planet out there in the universe? When you consider all these different parameters, some of which we, many of which we've talked about over this podcast and, and the previous one, I'm sure that there are quite a few more, but how likely is it that we're going to find another Earth? You know, we're finding extrasolar planets all the time right now. You can read the news and there's stories about extrasolar planets quite frequently, but is it likely that any of them are going to be habitable? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And basically that diagram is a kind of a, a blueprint for astrobiology research uh, that's going on now and that will continue in the coming decades, answering this kind of question, what exactly do you need to have a planet that's as habitable as the Earth? How, how common are they in the galaxy or in the rest of the universe? What we're discovering and what this diagram shows in a very simple way is that the habitability factors are very numerous. They're interdependent on each other. So you have arrows of dependence pointing in both directions. And so uh, things, you, you if you don't have the right property, for example, for a particular planet to be habitable, let's say it's not the right size, then you could say, okay, well, you can fix it by doing something else, maybe changing its composition. But then that affects habitability in other ways, because each each of those factors affects habitability in multiple different ways. The size of a planet will affect how quickly it loses its atmosphere, how much surface relief it has, how quickly it loses a magnetic field from the interior cooling, how it interacts with other bodies in its planetary system, whether uh, a large moon can stabilize a tilt of its orbit, for example, what rotation it initially starts off with. So there are these all these very complex interrelationships, uh, which is why you can't really treat any one of these in isolation, but you kind of have to do everything at once, at least, you know, uh, that's why it's been so hard to to answer this question up to now is because people, you know, they've been only kind of focusing on one aspect uh, in isolation at a time, and they gradually are bringing in other factors that are interdependent and making this complex web of uh, interdependencies. Uh, we're, you know, we're learning that, hey, you can't just ignore the other planets in the solar system. Jupiter has influence on the the properties of terrestrial planets that you form in a planetary system. How much water is delivered to those planets? How often it gets impacted by asteroids, for example. Uh, and so you're finding out that, wow, all these things that we thought we could just ignore before are important. They're highly specific and interdependent, uh, the habitability factors are. 
I'm not uh, at the point yet where I can pin down or put a probability on these things. We just too many things that are work in progress still uh, and, and doing all these uh, complex simulations and observations. So I don't know if we exhaust the probabilistic resources of the universe to have another Earth-like planet. I, I'm willing to say that we're alone in the galaxy as far as a, a planet that can support complex life. You know, the galaxy is a pretty big place. It's about 200 billion stars or so. So I'm willing to uh, go out there and uh, stick my neck out and say, yeah, we're probably alone in the galaxy, but not quite ready to say with confidence we're alone in the universe as far as the only uh, Earth-like planet complex life. Very wise to not go out on a limb and say that something is impossible in the universe. The universe is a very big place. But but I guess, you know, we, we always use Carl Sagan as sort of our foil in these conversations because he was such an expositor of the idea that, oh, there's we're so insignificant, but yet the universe is so big. Anything can happen. He talked about billions and billions of stars. Well, there's billions and billions of stars in our galaxy. And even that might not be enough to form a, another habitable planet along the lines of Earth, perhaps elsewhere. But I mean, certainly uh, we don't live in the Star Trek world. I'm, I'm sort of a sci-fi junkie. And in the Star yeah. Trek world, you know, most of the time they're just exploring within our galaxy. And it's our galaxy where they're finding all these other planets with life. It doesn't, doesn't seem like that's probably going to happen to find Earth-like planet in our galaxy that can sustain life. Right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Well, I want to ask you one last question here, Guillermo, and this was not a question that was on the list. This is maybe going a little bit out on a limb here, going sort of beyond the science of intelligent design and getting in sort of the, to the larger implications, because I gave a talk recently that was sort of a reprisal of Steve Meyer's return of the God hypothesis argument, which I'm I'm guessing you're familiar with, where he talks about, you know, we have the, yes. the fine-tuning, we have the, the Big Bang and the fine-tuning of the universe, which points to a cosmic designer. We have the fine-tuning of life on Earth and the information and complexity of life, which points to a biological designer. And he goes through some of the different potential, you know, models, even, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, not necessarily scientific, but that, that can explain... This evidence, and he talks about deism and theism and pantheism and alienism, panspermia and materialism and all these different sort of almost worldviews that exist and what can explain this best. And I think it's pretty clear that you need some kind of a transcendent designer to explain the global fine-tuning. We talked about in the first podcast, you explained to us what global fine-tuning is, where you have the fine-tuning of parameters that affect the entire universe and had to be set at the an initial stages of the universe from the very beginning. And that requires, you know, some intelligent cause that can create the universe, that can set the, the fine-tuning parameters from the very beginning. And so that might rule out some of these within the universe designers, like an alien right. or, or pantheism, the idea that the universe itself is, is, you know, creating itself. Well, okay, no, you need some force outside the universe. Okay, fine. I want to ask you the question, though, deism versus theism, okay? A lot of what we've talked about looks at local fine-tuning parameters, fine-tuning that is specific to our solar system or our galaxy or our planet even. Do these local fine-tuning parameters help us talk about the question of was there design in the universe, not just at the very beginning, at the initial conditions, but has there been design later in the history of the universe to allow for a 
a very special habitable planet like Earth to come into existence. Do you see these local fine-tuning parameters talking about whether there's been sort of active design during the history of the universe? Yeah, I don't make the assumption of active design during the history of the universe. Uh, it certainly doesn't, I don't exclude it, but what convinces me really that the Earth is fine-tuned with us specifically in mind, with a designer and a creator who wanted us to discover the, the universe around us and that it points beyond itself is what Jay Richards and I discuss in The Privileged Planet. Not only is our local conditions fine-tuned for life and for us to be here, but they're fine-tuned also for us to be able to do science and discover the world around us, to see the stars, to have a transparent atmosphere so we can see the stars, we can see the galaxies, we can discover that the universe had a beginning and uh, that we can develop science, that there are clues out there like the rainbow up in the sky uh, and solar eclipses to inspire us to discover other things like general relativity, all these things. Uh, so I know it's a little beyond of the scope of today's questions. Uh, we didn't discuss how the we're fine-tuned for scientific discovery, but that aspect of it in particular convinces me that the designer had uh, very much a purpose in mind and creating a universe, not just with complex life that could exist, but that it could discover things and get to know uh, something about its designer in the same way that a cabinet maker, you can learn about a cabinet maker or uh, someone who's making a beautiful desk or something by the, the design of that that object and learn something about the purposes of that that carpenter, for, for example. Well, that's a very interesting answer, Guillermo, and I, I really like it. It's not the direction I was thinking, but I, you know, I wish we had time to talk about some of these parameters that talk about the fact that the universe seems to be designed for us to discover. Even our planet Earth seems to be specially situated for us to be able to do science and study the universe. And I would really encourage listeners to read Guillermo and Jay Richards' book, The Privileged Planet, which goes into these arguments in great detail how not only do we live on a planet that's designed for life, but it's also designed for scientific discovery. And so this this argument you're making essentially is that the designer didn't just sort of make the universe and then peace out, not caring about us, but actually had us specifically in mind, hoping that we would be able to be able to then discover science and caring about, you know, our discovery of the grandness of the universe, maybe even discovering that there is a designer out there because we see how special the universe is for life. We couldn't understand any of this if our planet was not specially designed for discovery and to do science. So I think it's a very innovative argument you've made, Guillermo, for uh, not just a, a creator, but a creator that actually had us in mind, that cares about us, that wants us to discover all this fine-tuning and the amazing properties of the universe. So uh, Guillermo, thank you very much for your time. It's been a really fascinating conversation. It's a, it's a Saturday morning here. You've got to go mow the lawn. I've got friends coming over for brunch, so we probably better wrap it up. But thank you so much for explaining to us about the fine-tuning of our of our special planet Earth. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a fun conversation. I really would encourage folks to check out the description of this podcast and download Guillermo's chapter in the book, Science and Faith and Dialogue. The chapter is, again, titled local fine-tuning and habitable zones. It's available for free online, so go and download it and uh, also read Guillermo's book, The Privileged Planet. It's a wonderful, more expansive treatment of these topics. I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. 
This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.